John chapter 13. Jump right in. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wish to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You called me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray again. Lord, help us to understand what you would say to us today in your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That we might be transformed. That we might understand the service and love of our great Savior who loves to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Um, According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, foot washing is, this is the definition, a religious rite practiced by the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church on Maundy Thursday of Holy Week, that's just before Easter, and by members of some other Christian denominations in their worship services. So at some point in history, the Roman Catholic Church introduced the custom Um, And they would call it even a a right to imitate the humility and selfless love of Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper the night before his crucifixion. This practice was originally an act of hospitality in the Palestinian homes there performed for guests who wore sandals and walked on the dusty roads. It was typically done by a, a servant or Um, Sometimes even the wife of the host, especially those um, kind of lower middle class houses uh, and families that did not have servants. The Apostle Paul refers to this practice in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 10. Augustine mentions it in one of his letters written somewhere around A.D. 400, something like 400 years after Christ. 
the uh, Maundy Thursday ceremony observed by, in Rome by the Pope and locally in parish churches, it first appeared, we think, in the Spanish liturgy of the 7th century, so seven, 800 years or so after Christ. In several European countries, uh, the monarchs or members of the royal family would wash the feet of poor people and give them gifts as part of a Maundy Thursday um, celebration. As a royal practice, by, practiced by the monarchy there uh, throughout Europe, it was continued, um, in England at least, it was continued uh, after the Reformation for a little bit, but was officially, in the Church of England, it was officially ceased as a practice in, in the year 1754. But foot washing is generally still practiced in, even in some Episcopalian churches today. You probably know that there are some, uh, some Mennonite brethren, um, Church of God churches, as well as some others, and where foot washing is considered an ordinance, uh, something established by Jesus to be continued, and uh, they would still practice this periodically throughout the year. So why do, why do we not view the practice of foot washing as an ordinance of the church, something established um, that we would do regularly like the Lord's Supper or baptism. I'd like to get this question out of the way before we really dive into the text. And the answer to this, why do we not view it this way, is simply this, because not everything Jesus did was done to establish an ordinance or a sacrament. So, for example, Jesus picked grain on the Sabbath, on the Old Testament Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, to make a point about the Sabbath. The church doesn't have a sacrament of grain picking on the Sabbath. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to make a point. He did many things to make a point, but none of them were ordained as sacraments or ordinances except for two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so those two, if I could call them rituals... They were intentionally ordained by Jesus for the church as, as continued kind of abiding practices in order to signify his death, really his death, burial, and resurrection. We see them as part of God's established um, ordinary means of grace. We are to be reminded of Jesus every time and proclaim his death until he comes every time we eat the bread or drink the cup. We are to be reminded of Jesus' resurrection, death and resurrection, every time somebody goes down into the water and comes back out again. These two signs were established um, to serve as those kind of signs of initiation into the visible covenant community. That's what baptism is, symbolic of your entrance into the covenant community. And then to serve as a, as a sign and seal of communion, in that covenant community, a, a continued communion with the saints, communion with Christ. So in the institution of the supper, um, the Lord, Jesus, commanded us to perform this, to eat the bread and drink the cup. And Luke tells us this. He, he says in the establishment of this, Luke writes, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we know 
do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus also commanded the visible church to baptize. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, one of the confessional standards of uh, churches around the world, written at the time of the Reformation, it explains what the sacraments are in question and answer form. Uh, Question 66 says, what are the sacraments? And the answer is this, the sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof, he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. That is, he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. The sacraments or the ordinances, baptism and communion, remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are to be a forefront in our mind. And though his washing of the disciples' feet here that I just read, this passage in John 13, it may share some of the characteristics of, a, of an ordinance or of a sacrament. It is an act that pointed to Christ's death. We'll see that as we work through this. But it doesn't share all of them. He didn't establish this as a perpetual ritual. It's not imposed on the church. It's not even, even mentioned as a practice, as, a, as an ordinance or a sacramental practice by the apostles in any of the later New Testament writings. In fact, and I mentioned this a minute ago, the only time foot washing is mentioned after the Gospel of John is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, and then it's an indicator that a widow has shown hospitality, has been a hospitable person. So it's much later in church history that it was made into an ordinance. It was one of the practices, as I said, of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And it was one of those ones that the Reformers rejected when they sought to bring the gospel back to the forefront of Christ's church. At that time, the pulpits were way off to the side and central to the worship service was the table. The reformers moved the table to the side and put the pulpit back central so that God's word would be the central focus of the church. I want to read one quote and then we'll move on. John Calvin, um, he had some strong or some might even say harsh words for the priests and the various European monarchs practice of foot washing. Now listen to this very carefully. He wrote this. He said, every year they hold a theatrical foot washing as if it were a farce which uh, they were playing on the stage. And so when they have performed this idle and unmeaning ceremony, they think that they have fully discharged their duty and reckon themselves at liberty to despise their brethren during the rest of the year. But what is far worse, after having washed the feet of of 12 men, they subject every member of Christ to cruel torture and thus spit on Christ's face. It's a display of buffoonery. And nothing else is as shameful as a shameful mockery of Christ. At all events, Christ does not enjoin an annual ceremony, but bids us to be ready throughout our whole life to wash the feet of our brethren and neighbors. Now, that's a strong warning, but it's a warning against externality, about putting your religion and servanthood on display before others, which is exactly what the Pharisees did. And this is not to say, I want to be really clear, I want you to hear me, 
It's not to say that every foot washing by our Christian brothers and sisters is a theatrical performance, as he says. But we should be careful to heed the warnings, even Calvin's warnings, because they, they echo similar warnings that we see in Scripture, putting our, dis, our religion on display before men. But as we begin to look at this Last Supper, I want to point out that John, John does not explicitly mention the institution of the Lord's Supper as, a, as an ordinance of the church, yet the other three gospel writers all do. As you read through this, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, institute the Lord's Supper here. He doesn't establish it. John doesn't talk about that. I believe that there is a simple explanation for this. First of all, he's already explained in detail. If you remember, um, when we were looking at John chapter 6, he very significantly said, I am the bread of life. But secondly, and, and I think even more to the point, John's central focus... The central reason that John is writing this book, the gospel according to John, is to evangelize. It is so that you may believe, he says. And so instead of emphasizing the bread and the cup, John is consistently pointing us to the object of our faith. He is consistently, constantly throughout this book, pointing us to Jesus himself. Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and was exalted, not to give us a custom or a ritual, as important as they are, but to give us himself, to give us the blessings that flow from his gift of salvation. So John is working hard here to keep us focused on his central and fundamental message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we need to understand what Jesus is doing here um, in these verses as we work through this. We need to understand that, that Jesus is living out a parable for the disciples to see. And he does this in a way that, as Jesus often does, he does this in a way that completely takes them off guard. Washing his disciples' feet here, it sets the tone for all that follows in the rest of this gospel. And this is another prime example that flows out of that first verse of this chapter. The love for his own. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. There are a couple of different ways in which we could outline verses 1 through 17. In fact, some would outline it all the way through verse 20. Um, So for example, let me give you one outline. We could see John's background information in the first three verses. There's some background that he lays out as to what's about to happen. And then we see Jesus' action. He's actually working to wash the disciples' feet in verses 4 and 5. So there's background, then there's some action. And then he offers up two different explanations. Jesus gives us two explanations of what he's doing. The first is in verses 6 to 11. And then the second explanation is in verses 12 to 17. And if we wanted to keep going really through uh, further into the chapter, John connects Judas's betrayal in verses 18 to 30. He connects that with this scene of the foot washing. The disciples have some, they have some leaven of unrighteousness in their midst. They have some filthiness with them and they need to be purified. See, this passage, though, is... 
not merely a, a lesson in humility. Sometimes that's what we pull from it is the example beginning in verse 12 that Jesus himself says, I have given you an example. You are to serve one another. You are to go and do likewise. But this isn't merely a lesson in humility. Jesus does, as I said, Jesus does tell them to imitate him. But before he explains that, uh, that he's given them an example, he first explains in his dialogue with Peter that this is about cleansing. This is a real-life parable about cleansing that only comes from the cross. A cleansing without which no one can belong to Christ. The deeper meaning then, as one writer put it, he said this, is that there is no place in this fellowship for those who have been cleansed, have not been cleansed by his atoning death. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying there is no place in this fellowship for people who have not been cleansed by my atoning death. This occasion dramatically symbolizes the truth that we find in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, which says this, the same John will write, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This entire section of scripture illustrates what the church is supposed to be like. It's a fellowship of cleansed people, loving and serving one another. But they, but they got to be washed by the blood of the Lamb or they're just observers. But instead of kind of outlining this in sort of a, a literal way with background and action and all of that, um, I want to instead outline this with Jesus at the center. So, focus on Jesus here and what Jesus is doing and saying. In this passage, we can see a display of Christ's love, a symbol of his saving cleansing, and then as we'll probably have to get to next week, the third point, um, Lord willing anyway, a model of Christian conduct. So first, a display of Christ's love, then a symbol of his saving cleansing, and then a model of Christian conduct, and we'll look at that last one next week. So a display of Christ's love. Look at verses 2 to 5 again. I should start in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. These disciples, the 12 who are with him here, they've been with Jesus for right about three years now. They've given up everything to follow him. They've seen his signs in fact, in the, in the earlier chapters of John's gospel, as we've walked through this, several of the signs that Jesus performs are, are immediately followed by, by long teachings, long explanations that, that, that kind of unpack or explain the meaning of each of the signs that he does. But here, it's completely reversed. 
The purpose of this is for Jesus to explain and illustrate what's going to happen later on the cross. He is showing them here the significance of his glorification. He's showing them the significance of his death and burial and resurrection and his ascension to glory. This is Jesus' last opportunity to teach his disciples about his love for them. Last one before, at least, he goes to the cross later that night or the next day. This is his last opportunity to teach them of God's saving love. And he begins not with words, but with action. It was John himself who would later write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that's what Jesus is doing here. As we saw last week, right in that first verse, Jesus has loved his own and he has loved them to the end. And this is a demonstration, a a display of his love. And so as the supper begins, uh, custom would normally have the the meal's host uh, providing a servant to wash these dirty feet of his guests. But in this case, there was no one... No one there to wash the feet of the disciples. And so likely, probably because they're men, they didn't worry about cleaning up before dinner. They just went in and sat down, started eating. But one of the details that we sometimes miss when we read this is the fact that Jesus washed their feet. Right there at the beginning of verse 2, it says, during supper. And then down in the beginning of verse 4, it says that he rose from supper. Now, the average person in this region of the world um, would have expected this when they first arrived, if they'd been invited over for dinner. Some prominent teacher invites a bunch of people over for dinner. They would have expected that a servant would have met them at the door with a bowl and towel before the meal was served, not in the middle of dinner. And during the, the supper, now picture the scene, during the supper, as the disciples ate, Luke tells us, in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, he says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So in the minds of the disciples, as they are eating, in their conversation with one another, as they're enjoying the Passover meal, the supper, is this idea in their minds of their own greatness. Remember, earlier in the day, the crowds had been chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And now the disciples are arguing over who gets what spot among the royal advisors. In their minds is their own greatness. But clearly, as we see this play out, in the mind of Christ is obedience and humility and love and even abandonment and betrayal and death. But John doesn't actually tell us what's in the minds of the twelve. We have to get that from Luke. But he does tell us what's in the heart and mind of one of the twelve. Verse 2 again. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Betrayal is in the heart of Judas 
as this scene unfolds. Do you know why John puts verse 2 right here at the beginning of this? If you think about it, he didn't have to. Jesus himself will hint at the betrayal down in verse 10, really verses 10 and 11. Um, and the beginning of verse 18, he's going to come back to it and explain it in greater detail to the disciples. But John drops it in right here, right at the beginning of the scene, before Jesus gets up and takes his outer garment off and gets a bowl of water and a towel. Why does John put it in at the beginning? I think because he wants us to see that the amazing love of Jesus is even deeper than we could imagine. John wants to remind us at the outset of this that Judas is in the room. That Judas, he wants us to, to picture Jesus quietly wiping Judas's feet with a towel wrapped around his waist. He wants us to understand that the love of Christ is greater far than all my sin and shame. But do you know the difference between Judas and Judas' betrayal and Peter and Peter's denial or even the other's abandonment of Christ? The difference is repentance. Repentance is the difference here. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Every time John mentions Judas, every time we've heard of him in the book, John brings up his betrayal. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, he seems to be personally hurt by the damage that Judas did to his, that is John's savior. He seems personally offended by this, and he's going to point out every time he writes his name down, this is the one who betrayed him. And here in verse 2, he isn't trying to shift the blame from Judas to the devil. That's not what he's doing there. In fact, the construction of the sentence is not as clear as even this translation makes it to be when it says that the devil put it into Judas's heart. It's kind of, it might actually be that the devil's heart is made up. But the point here is to contrast, to, to provide this kind of contrast between what, what motivates Judas, that is the devil himself, and what motivates Jesus, which is his love for his own. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Can you see the contrast? Can you see the contrast between the motivations and how they respond? This contrast remains even for us. Listen to the contrast between the, between the ways of the world and the ways of Christ. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this in the first verse. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but is Jesus, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God of this world had blinded the, the mind of Judas because he was an unbeliever, even though he was there with him even though he was there following, even though he was there serving and had given up all to follow him. The God of this world had blinded his eyes, his mind, even as Jesus washed his feet. Even as Jesus washed his feet, Judas could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In fact, we'll find out later. All he could think about was money. But the contrast continues in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus is motivated by fulfilling his mission. He understood that the authority that he has is authority that the Father has given him. In fact, in Matthew 28, when he, when he, when he ush, uh, utters the, the great commission... He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority. And so we might expect at this point, Jesus to demand that one of his disciples serve him by washing his feet. Hey, why don't one of you guys get up and wash everybody's feet? Why don't you start with me, since I'm the king? Judas might be a good candidate for this. If we think of a list of Disciples from best to worst, Judas is probably at the bottom of that list. He might be a good candidate to be taught some humility. Or Peter. Peter will call himself a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ in one of his letters. And yet look at verses 4 and 5 again. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The Holy One of God, the Son of Man, the one to whom was given dominion and and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. The one to whom the Lord said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Or even the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, the Lord stoops to wash the feet of his own whom he loved to the end. We might expect him to immediately defeat the devil here in some sort of urgent and glorious way. Now the time has come. We might expect him to devastate Judas, to pour out the wrath of God on him. But instead he washed his feet. Instead he took on the dress of a a lowly household slave a bathroom attendant. He took on the dress of a, of a locker room towel boy. 
And he does it to demonstrate his love for them with an eye toward the ultimate sacrifice that he will make for them on the cross. And he does this as a symbol of his saving cleansing, a symbol of his saving cleansing. Verse 6 and 7, and he came to Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. We can we can imagine the awkward silence as this unfolded. As the conversation in the room about which one of them was the greatest sort of came to a close as they realized that Jesus is walking around washing each of the disciples' feet. You can imagine that at some point the conversation's completely quiet. The room is silent and all you can hear is the water in the bowl. The towel being wrung out. And Peter being Peter, has to be the one to break the silence. This scene is embarrassing for the disciples. Just this week, just during the previous chapter here, in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, a large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Just in the last couple of days, Gentiles had come to one of them and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. How long had it been since they had heard the voice from heaven? A matter of a couple of hours? Jesus had just said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Victory in Jesus. I wonder which one of us is going to be chosen to sit at his right hand. And yet he's washing their feet. And while the others sit in that kind of awkward, embarrassed silence as, as all of this unfolds, Peter can't help himself. Peter is candid. Peter is, he's even well-meaning, but he's totally off base. This here in verse uh, 6 is, is Peter being indignant. Do you wash my feet? I should be washing yours. You're the Messiah. Notice he doesn't make a move or doesn't tell us that he makes a move to take the towel and let me wash your feet. He said something like this before, or at least with this same attitude, this indignant, this is beneath you, is his attitude. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It says this, Mark tells us, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, meaning that's pretty much what he was saying. He wasn't telling him those things in parables. He just said it to him plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Lord, this is, you got to stop talking like this. Nobody wants to hear about a, a suffering Christ. Nobody wants to hear about a suffering king. This was Simon Peter at his indignant and impulsive best, not understanding at all what Jesus was really doing. Jesus expects, Jesus is doing this so that Peter will accept his washing in faith. 
He expects him to trust him. He expects us to submit to him, to, to learn from him. And yet, and yet as, as none of them understand how the, how the Christ could possibly go to the cross, they certainly don't understand this symbolic act either. They certainly don't understand what he is doing here. And so Jesus patiently explains that they will understand afterward. Actually, it says, after these things, after the foot washing, after the betrayal, after the trials, after the cross, after the resurrection, after his ascension, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, after these things, you will understand. But of course, Peter digs in his heels. Look at verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, it is a good rule of thumb um, to not indignantly argue with our Savior. Okay? It's a good rule of thumb to not indignantly argue with the Creator of the universe. It's especially a good idea... To not rebuke him. Just keep that in mind as you walk throughout your Christian life. But even though that's what Peter does, look at Jesus' patience with him. Look at his patience with him through this. He's firm with him. His answer actually brings Peter up short. In fact, he, he completely changes his tune. So look at what Jesus says. He says, if I do not wash you, if I do not make you clean, do you remember, do you remember David's prayer of confession from Psalm 51 when he was caught in the, in the sin of adultery and murder? When he was caught? Isaiah 51, just verse 7, says this, David prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David prayed that because he was completely dependent upon God for forgiveness and restoration. He was unfaithful. He was filled with iniquity, and he needed a Savior to wash him, to remove the stain of his sin and guilt. Jesus here is reminding Peter, you need me to do this. You need me to do this. If I do not wash you, he says to him, he goes on, he says, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me, no inheritance, no place in my kingdom. I imagine based on Peter's response, I want to be careful putting too much imagination into what God's word says, but I imagine that the the color probably drained from Peter's face when he said that because he completely changed his tune. If I do not wash you, you're going to have no place in my kingdom. You'll have no share with me. But I want to be the greatest in your kingdom. I want to be the greatest. I'm your right-hand man. Whenever the disciples list, whenever the gospel writers list the list of the twelve, Peter's always the first one listed. I should be your secretary of state. Or whatever. I want to be your right hand, but I want to be the greatest in your kingdom. What do you mean? I can have no place with you. 
Now, remember, this is the Passover. And as we saw last week, at this time in Jerusalem, the people of Israel are cleansing their houses of all the leaven. And, and here, Jesus is he's cleansing. Really, what he's doing is he's pointing out to them their need for his cleansing from all unrighteousness. He's pointing out the need for their cleansing from all unrighteousness. Now, I want, I want you to make a connection here. Listen to Exodus chapter 12 and the establishment of the Passover, which th- this is all a part of. Just verses 21 and 22. Exodus 12, 21 and 22 says this. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select your uh, lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is at the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Now listen to David's prayer of repentance. I'm going to read more of it. Psalm 51. I just read verse 7, but let me me read verses uh, 1 through 12. Psalm 51 says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy with gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Did you catch verse 7? Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, immediately uh, following a, a call to repentance, God gives this promise. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If I do not wash you, you can have no share with me. Now certainly Peter, I don't know if he understood all of this, but what he did understand is that he did not want Jesus to reject him. And so once again in that typical overstatement, he says in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. He knew who it was who would betray him. That's why he said not all are clean. Peter's the type of guy that immediately regrets what he's blurted out as the words come out and he tries to grab them. And so he overcorrects. 
Peter's a man of extremes. And at the beginning of verse 10, when he says, well, then wash my hands and my head as well, he's talking about purification here. Jesus is saying to him in verse 10, when Jesus says the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. He's saying, it's okay, Peter, you're you're safe. He's being literal right there in order to emphasize the symbolic. So if you've had a bath before you walked to dinner on the dusty road, you don't need another bath. You just need a foot wash. Listen to what John says in 1 John. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he says this, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's okay, he says. You guys are safe. You're clean. But not all of you. Even amongst his disciples, there is one whose whose heart remains unclean. Even controlled by the God of this world, controlled by the devil. John is preparing us, preparing them for Judas' betrayal. People, people often tell jokes about what will happen when they, when they try to get into heaven, when they die and go to heaven. Usually those jokes involve meeting St. Peter at the pearly gates. Um, but if you were to actually meet Peter at the pearly gates, which you won't, that's a myth, it doesn't happen like that. Do you think that he would ask you why you should be allowed into heaven? Do you think that you would be able to convince him that you should be allowed in because of your good deeds? Or do you think that if this were true, which, again, it won't be Peter that we meet at the gates, do you think that he might say something like, unless you have been washed by Christ, you can have no part with him? Unless you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness by Jesus' blood himself, you can have no part of him. Jesus is about to die as he does this. He's about to die the atoning death that meant cleansing for his people. He's about to be the Passover lamb, the, the true Passover lamb. There's no other way to be Christ's than, to, than in receiving the cleansing that he died to bring. If he doesn't wash your sins away, you can have no part with him, he says. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the point of this. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer, it is our belief that our greatest need is Christ. That our greatest need is to be washed
to be um, cleansed from all unrighteousness by Jesus Christ himself. Father, we cling to the truth that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And so we pray today, Lord, that we would be a people who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, that we would live like we have been washed, cleansed, made righteous, that we would be a people who have confessed our sins and stand firm in the truth that for those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who have been washed clean by his blood. Help us to trust in you, to stand firm in your promises, because you are faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.